You are listening to Locally Sourced Science. Your connection to the scientific discoveries happening in the Finger Lakes community. Hello, Locally Sourced Science listeners. I'm Liz Mahood, your host for this episode. In our previous episode, we interviewed researchers who found creative workarounds to the COVID-19 pandemic. In this episode, we'll hear interviews from researchers who use the pandemic as inspiration for novel research. First up in this episode is locally sourced science Janani Hariharan interviewing Dr. Jennifer Surtees, who is an associate professor of biochemistry at the University of Buffalo and co-director of University of Buffalo's Genome, Environment and Microbiome Community of Excellence. Dr. Surtees recently worked with the Erie County Department of Public Health to sequence SARS-CoV-2 isolates, and in the interview, she will share some of her findings. We will learn about what SARS-CoV-2 genomes look like, how genomics can inform public health guidelines, and how to access a public database that contains information on SARS-CoV-2 strains from around the world. Later in the show, we will hear Locally Source Science's Esther Rakusin interview Jason Gus, the CEO of Iterate Labs, which develops wearable technologies to enhance worker safety. With the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, Iterate Labs is developing new applications for their wearable devices, including preventing the spread of SARS-CoV-2 virus in workplaces, and facilitating contact tracing if and when a worker contracts the virus. Finally, we will hear from locally sourced scientist Candace Lumper, who will tell us about newly funded research studying many different aspects of the pandemic. First, here is Janani Hariharan interviewing Dr. Jennifer Surtees. This is Janani Hariharan for Locally Source Science. I am Jennifer Surtees. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Biochemistry at the University at Buffalo, which is part of the State University of New York. Um, and I'm also co-director of the UB's Genome, Environment, and Microbiome Community of Excellence, which is a, a broad based community of researchers, staff, and faculty interested in genomics and the microbiome. I decided to interview Dr. Surtees because I heard that she had sequenced quite a few SARS-CoV-2 isolates from the Buffalo area. I asked her if she could tell us a little bit more about that. Back in, um, I guess it was March or early April, um, I started thinking about you know, how, as a scientist with my lab shut down, how I could contribute to the ongoing effort to understand SARS and, I mean, the COVID, excuse me, and the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And um, what I was able to do was to get in touch with the, one of our strengths here is the genomic um, sequencing and analysis. And so I was able to get in touch with the Erie County Department of Health, their public health lab, which at the time was the only place in Erie County doing testing for the coronavirus, um, and asked them if they could provide us with samples so that we could actually sequence and try to understand where the virus was coming from, like where it was being introduced from, um, you know, through China or through Europe or that sort of thing. And so we could also try to get a sense of the community spread and transmission throughout the region. 
And fortunately, when they were doing their testing, they were saving the RNA samples um, following their, their test. And so they were able to give us a set, an initial set of about 50 samples um, of the virus, of, of the RNA itself. So they had extracted the RNA from the virus and we got de-identified RNA samples. So we don't know who they belong to. We just have this set of 50 and I brought it over to the Genomics and Bioinformatics Corps here at UB, and we developed a pipeline for amplifying um, it's reverse transcription and then amplification of the RNA so that we could do the DNA sequencing. And then we also worked on a bioinformatic pipeline that integrates into the next strain database, which is this open database that... Um, scientists from around the world have been contributing to for the past several months. Um, it had been set up before for other viruses, but as soon as people started sequencing the coronavirus or the SARS-CoV-2, um, people have started depositing the genomic sequences into this open database, which is phenomenal. So there are like thousands and thousands of RNA viral sequences um, in this database right now. Since the next strain database contains sequences from all over the world, I asked Dr. Surtees how their sequences compared to those already in the database. Right, so what we do with our sequences, so we amplify, um, so we make additional copies of the RNA so that we can sequence it. So we basically take the RNA and then we convert it to DNA um, using re reverse transcriptase, and then we amplify or make many, many, many copies of short par portions of the genome. Um, a little, so we're looking, we're able to sequence, you know, 300 base pairs at a time. And what we find are mostly base substitutions, so a single, like a, a a spelling error in the sequence, or a single um, insertion or deletion, so loss or gain of a single base. So those are the main types. Of, of mutations that are observed, and that's consistent with what's been observed worldwide. Um, but by looking at the combination of mutations that are present, or these variants that are present in the genomes that we sequenced, we can infer their origins. And so what we found is that in the Erie County area, we have um, virus that appears to have been De uh, derived from multiple different sources or taken multiple different paths to get to Buffalo. Um, so the based on the combinations of mutations, the viral sequences, the viral genomes, excuse me, are divided into different clades or, or segments um, that are most related to one another. And the, imp the implication is that they kind of come from the same place if they're closely related. And so there are clades that have um, originated in Asia. And so there's the original China um, Wuhan uh, virus that was originally isolated or found in Wuhan. Um, and then there's another uh, clade that is has con gone through Singapore. And then there are three European clades, one that has an origin or has come through uh, via Italy, one through France, and then one that's more of a mixed um, European uh, 
population with evidence of um, mutations that are, are prevalent in Italy and France, as well as Spain um, and other countries. So when we look at everything, all of the different sequences and place them on these clades based on the combinations of mutations or variants that we see, we see that um, actually the majority of our samples um, of the 32, so we started it with 50, um, and 32 we passed our quality control and we got really good coverage. So we have confidence in these 32 samples um, or genome sequences. And of the 32, uh, there are, they're actually divided between an Asian and a European origin, although more of them are coming from Europe. Um, about a third of them are from Asia and about two thirds of them look like they're coming through Europe. And within the Asian clade, we do see samples that have been or that are seem to be more directly from China, as well as a handful that are have come through Singapore. And in the European samples, we have samples that are clearly from have come through Italy, some others from France, and then. Um, there are one or two in this sort of mixed population. So we actually have, um, even within this small set, we actually have representation from all over the world, basically. If you're just tuning in, this is Locally Source Science. I am Jenny Hadihuren, and we're talking to Dr. Jennifer Sertiz from the University of Buffalo about some of her recent work sequencing SARS-CoV-2 genomes from patients in the upstate New York area. As I'm listening to Dr. Surti's talk, it becomes clear to me that we're seeing a few different clades or groups of these, uh, these viruses from different parts of the world, and I ask her if these different clades seem to affect people differently. Yeah, I think it's been challenging to make those connections, although that's something that people are working on, including um, us now. One of the mutations that has gotten a lot of attention is this, um, it's a, a point mutation in the gene that encodes for the spike protein. So the spike protein is the protein that actually um, interacts with the ACE2 receptor and is essential for the virus to actually get into a cell. And there's one specific mutation that's referred to as the D614G mutation. And this mutation arose in Europe sometime in March or maybe early April. Uh, no, in March. Um, and it seems, when it is present, it seems to have taken over. So in all of our European samples, that mutation is present. It is in none of our Asian samples. Um, and so I think that is a really interesting one. There have been some limited studies done in the in the lab now to determine whether this mutation actually confers an advantage or if the if it's more of just a um, you know luck of the draw that it's become more prevalent um, but the mutation does seem to increase the ability the stability of the spike protein and its ability to infect cells at least, in, in the lab. Um, and so there may be, that may be increasing the infectivity of the virus. 
That doesn't necessarily mean that it changes the symptoms that are observed. And there's a, as you know, there's a tremendous amount of variability with what symptoms are actually observed from the severity of the symptoms to the actual type of symptoms that people see. So it's been really challenging to make those correlations. But this spike mutation might um, impact the ability of the virus to get into the cells in the first place. The next strain database sounds like an enormously useful resource for scientists trying to understand the coronavirus better. But how useful is it as a resource for public health management? So I think what this database does is it allows us to actually track the path um, that it is that that the virus has taken both around the world and also within communities, and so it can be used side by side. And in fact, it has been used in Australia side by side with contact tracing as a way to improve the ability of public health officials to to trace community transmission and community spread. Um, if you can do rapid genomic sequencing um, of people that po test positive, then you can um, get a sense of whether person A was infected by person B or person C potentially. And so just have a, get a better handle on, on what the transmission is like. The other thing having all of these different sequences from all over the world can do is it can teach us about the mutation rate, how quickly the virus is evolving. Um, you know, we have basically an origin. Uh, this The reference strain is from December. The sequence is from December. And all of the samples that are in the next strain database are have a date associated with them. So we know when the, the, the virus was sampled or, or tested. And so we can actually watch in semi-real time the accumulation and the rate of accumulation of mutations. And this can tell us a little, give us a little bit of information about whether we are going to have issues with um, evolution of the, of the virus when it comes to vaccine development um, and, and that sort of thing. It also gives us some insight into the biology of the virus in terms of the fidelity, its own fidelity of replication um, and the types of mutations and variants it tends to make. One of the things that's not included in the next strain database, just because of the way that the sequence is generated using these small amplicons, um, is whether or not there are rearrangements of the genome that are, is a, that are occurring. Um, RNA viruses actually recombine quite a bit. So what that that just means that the virus um, genome gets breaks and induced and it, it flips around. So it re rearranges the order of the genes. And that's actually how these viruses evolve. And that's how it can now, this particular virus can now infect humans because it has rearranged in such a way that it's virulent in, in humans. Um, and and one, that's one of the things that I think is also really interesting um, going forward to understand what sort of rearrangements are present and how that impacts the evolution and, and potentially the virulence as well. And that's something we're really interested in looking at. Finally, I asked Dr. Surtees if a non-scientist could also access the NextStrain database. 
Absolutely. Um, it's available. And it, I mean, it's it's an amazing website. It's just nexttrain.org. And you can explore. I mean, it's, it's, it, it um, displays data from around the world in these clades that I mentioned, and it will do it in different ways. Like it's got sort of the square bracket type clades, and it's also got a circular one that is sometimes easier to see um, how things look. But you can also look at all of this, uh, just the genome, just genome sequences from North America or from South America. Um, and you can really get a sense by looking at um, the spread, you know, the diversification of the virus over time, um, what's actually happening. And you can play around and compare uh, genome sequences as well. The um, next strain database is using um, genome. So the genome sequences are actually deposited in the GISAID database. So that's just GISAID.org. And then the next strain database is really a platform. So it's a bioinformatic platform to display the genome sequences. And together, these open databases are making a, a vast amount of genomic information available um, for anybody to look at and explore. This research was made possible by a State University of New York COVID seed grant. Service is provided by the UB Genomics and Bioinformatics Corps and samples courtesy of the Erie County Department of Public Health Lab. For Locally Sourced Science, this is Jenny Harihara. If you are just joining us, you just heard Janani Hariharan interviewing Dr. Jennifer Surtees about her recent research on the genome sequencing of SARS-CoV-2 isolates. Next up is Esther Rakusen interviewing Jason Gus about his novel, Wearable Technology, designed to enforce social distancing. Afterwards, Candace Limper will review recently funded COVID-19 research. I'm Esther Rakusen for Locally Sourced Science. The proverb, necessity is the mother of invention, may explain why scientists are expanding their usual areas of research due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Jason Gus and Apoorva Kiran, two former PhD students from the Cornell College of Engineering, started a company called Iterate Labs in 2016. The company, which is located in Ithaca and Boston, had the initial goals to create wearable devices that could improve workplace ergonomic safety. With the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, Iterate Labs is developing a new application for their wearable devices. They are being used to prevent spread of SARS-CoV-2 virus in workplaces and to facilitate contact tracing when and if a worker contracts the virus. To learn more about this new application, I spoke with Dr. Jason Gus, CEO of Iterate Labs. To start off, I asked him to explain what wearable devices are and why his company developed them. Uh, so wearable technologies are connected devices um, that are worn by users. And uh, really the application we've focused on for wearables are what would be more called like enterprise wearables rather than consumer facing wearables. 
Um, for us, uh, as well as most wearables, a lot of times they have sensors or screens. Um, they're connected via Bluetooth or the internet. Um, and for us, really, where we focused as a company is um, understanding human motion uh, by using the wearables and then basically providing uh, analytics and insights based upon digitized human motion. Um, and where we focus has been the industrial workforce. So when you first started the company Iterate, you were working on wearable devices that could help prevent workers from developing repetitive use injuries. And how did those work? Those wearables um, focused on really capturing a person's posture, uh, repetition, and duration of movements. And these are factors that are important for evaluating uh, repetitive motion injuries as well as other types of ergonomic injuries. So we basically used this collected data, analyzed it, and then we're able to provide feedback back to the user as well as to uh, the organization on areas that can be improved to help prevent injury. And can you talk about what some of those industries were? Yeah, largely we focused on uh, meat processing in, uh, as an industry to start. This in industry has historically had the highest rates of uh, repetitive motion injuries as well as upper extremity injuries. But we've also begun focusing in other areas of manufacturing as well. Um, really anywhere where there's a lot of manual physical labor um, that's done on a daily basis. I asked where the workers would wear the devices in order to detect repetitive movements. Yeah, so the, the wearables, uh, they attach to a worker's glove. So uh, they attach basically on the hand and wrist. They can also attach to the bare hand as well. And essentially with this, uh, we're able to digitize hand and arm movement. And then that's how we basically evaluate it. So we're only really focused on upper extremity injuries um, with our technology, at least to date. I wondered how Iterate adapted the wearable devices to be utilized for location awareness. How did you modify the devices to enhance location awareness? And can you explain what that, what that means? Yeah, so our, our devices um, leverage Bluetooth technology. And so we're able to essentially, um, through the way we collect data, the devices send data via Bluetooth to a Bluetooth gateway. And then through this, we're actually able to, uh, through triangulation, to learn where the wearable is actually located and where the worker is located. And so through this method, we're able to get worker location. Um, and that's how, how we've done it. Iterate is using a different type of radio technology called ultra-wideband, or UWB, instead of Bluetooth for its location awareness technology. Here, Gus talks about how UWB works. So ultra-wideband a more effective way to, um, to capture uh, distancing and location. It's more accurate than Bluetooth, and so that's why we've begun working with other uh, partners uh, for the ultra-wideband aspect of the technology. It's a radio technology, and basically we're using a different um, signal than that of Bluetooth that's more effective for uh, and more accurate for being able to, to draw location inferences from. So essentially, um, based upon the nature of, of the 
the, the signal itself where you're able to get more accurate location data. Can you explain what happens when two workers who are wearing the location awareness um, devices, what happens when they get close to each other? So yeah, when two workers are wearing the device, um, essentially the devices are able to uh, tell that one that they're within six feet of another one. And then a uh, haptic vibrational alert as well as a visual alert occurs to alert the users that they need to uh, basically um, get away from the, the other user that, where the sensor is going off for. I then asked how the contact tracing component of the wearable device works. So for, for contact tracing, essentially we're able to, every time the devices come uh, within another device and there's an alert that goes off, there's an essentially a log created of that interaction. And so if um, retrospectively you find out that someone uh, came down with COVID-19, we're then able to look at that log of information for every interaction that was made. And from there, we're then able to provide that list of essentially potential people that may have been exposed based upon a, a breach of that six-foot distance. Iterate Labs has built a privacy component into its wearable devices. Here, Gus explains how that works. For, for privacy, like Iterate Labs, we're, we're never getting the actual worker name or any type of information along those lines. Um, what we're able to do the way we've devised the system is essentially just a worker ID can be entered into the system. That worker ID is associated with a wearable. And then essentially from there, when, when an analysis is run, you're able to see uh, which other worker IDs may have been in contact with those other uh, workers. The Iterate wearable devices with location awareness and contact tracing are mostly being used in food processing companies and some metal fabrication factories but they are also being tested in a lab on the Cornell campus. There's one Cornell professor we're working with there. Mm-hmm. Um, in this situation, um, I think there's about 10 or 12 students in the lab um, that, that we're deploying it at. And I believe it's an engineering lab, but I don't remember the, the specifics around um, what they're doing in, in the lab. I asked Gus if the wearable devices could be used in other locations, such as in office buildings. The technology could be used, I'd say, pretty much um, anywhere, though. But the the system is really only as effective as if you have every participant using it. Um, And, you know, I'd say if, if you're looking to have it just for social distancing, You'd need everyone to be using it so that you'd get the appropriate alerts. And then similarly for contact tracing to be effective, you would also need um, to be uh, to have everyone have it so you could record all of those interactions as well. So it could work, but you would you would want either a large or majority of, of people to, to have the technology and to be compliant with it. Dr. Jason Gus, CEO of Iterate Labs, thank you for speaking with me today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. To learn more about Iterate's COVID safe technology, you can visit the company's website at iteratelabs.co. For locally sourced science, I'm Esther Rakusen. 
Hi everybody, my name is Candace Limper with Locally Sourced Science, and today I will be talking about a new funding grant initiated to help COVID-19 related research at Cornell University. SARS-CoV-2 is a relatively new virus, and because of this, there are many things we do not understand about it. However, we do know that SARS-CoV-2 causes coronavirus disease, COVID-19, and scientific organizations worldwide are working to understand the biologies of what it's doing in our bodies and also how people are perceiving these findings. Similarly, scientists from Cornell University are also trying to understand this virus, and these efforts are not cheap. Luckily, the Cornell Atkins Center for Sustainability has awarded approximately $250,000 to 10 faculty research projects geared towards finding solutions to COVID-19-related issues. These research projects cover a wide range of topics, including surveying SARS-CoV-2 in wastewater, all the way to examining how misinformation on social media affects user opinions about this virus. These findings will allow us to all understand this virus in a variety of different ways. There is no doubt that this virus has and continues to impact us all, and only knowing more about it will help us protect ourselves against it. Thankfully, Cornell Atkins Center is helping us build a better future for tomorrow by understanding the problems we are living through today. If you would like to learn more about Cornell Atkins Center, you can follow them on Twitter at Atkins Center. A-T-K-I-N-S-O-N Center, where they regularly post on their Twitter feed. You have been listening to the latest research award given out by Cornell Atkins Center, brought to you by Candace Limper with Locally Source Science. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Locally Sourced Science. In this episode, we heard Janani Harihiran interviewing Dr. Jennifer Surtis, Esther Rakusen interviewing Jason Gus, and Candace Limper with a survey of recently funded COVID-19 research. We thank Joe Lewis for the introduction and Blue Dot Sessions for the music. If you'd like to learn more about locally sourced science, listen to archive episodes, or subscribe to our podcast, head to our website at www.locallysourcedscience.org.